to the Line Break Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my co-host, Bob Sakura. Hello! Uh, this week we are reading um, canonical poems. It's <laughs> a very loose topic that we decided to go with this week. Now, to be frank, I don't read a lot of canonical poetry. I guess my cutoff is kind of the 20th century, although I do like people like Emily Dickinson and some ancient stuff like... Beowulf for the Odyssey, um, Sappho, but I think there are far too many exciting writers working today and far too many 20th century writers who still don't get enough shine for me to spend any time reading someone as boring as Alexander Pope or as actively terrible as Christopher Marlowe. I should also say that I am mostly talking about Western canon, English and American poetry. Um, I've read some Basho and Rumi and things here and there that I like and that I should explore more. I simply haven't gotten to yet. So there's a blind spot on my part. This sort of makes me feel like a bad reader, like I should have more respect for my poetic ancestors. But I, I can't, I just can't make myself muster the energy to read a lot of stuff pre-20th century. But I am speaking as a grad school dropout. Bob, you have multiple post-grad degrees. What's your relationship to the canon? <laughs> I almost picked a Marlowe poem. I'm really mad I did. Oh, no. Oh, that would have been great. That would have been excellent. Um, I was, so I was, uh, I was thinking about this as I was selecting a poem and doing my weekly um, waffling and indecisiveness and not telling you what I'm reading until the morning of, where I don't have all of my old anthologies. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a – we talked a lot about being English undergrad majors last week – as an English undergrad, um, one, refused to throw away all my books. Sure, um, yeah. Everything I read in undergrad I kept. And two, collected more anthologies than I needed. Sure, um, same here. And a lot of mine actually just, like, live in my parents' house. Right. That I will, like, presumably have space for one day. But, yeah, there are a lot of anthologies that I'll probably never pick up again that I still have. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so I was paging through the anthologies and kind of thinking about how so much of my early experience studying poetry um, is filtered through this style of reading um, old anthologies and reading old poems because there's a lot of stuff that I like recognize. I remembered, I saw some names I hadn't thought of in a long time, saw some poems I hadn't thought of in a long time. And just thinking about how I encounter all these poems in that context as opposed to within a collection Sure, sure. Um, And I remember feeling deeply embarrassed. I don't remember when, like, the question was posed to me, but I'm starting to take poetry pretty seriously, or at least I think I am. And someone was asking me, like, what are your favorite poetry collections? Just thinking about, like, wow, I can't even list that many, period. Right. Um, My reading had been, one, so not enough at the time. (laughs) Like, I wasn't taking poetry seriously based on how little reading I was doing. Um, Right. But two, that just so much of it had been filtered through my English undergrad experience, which is this like hodgepodge of a little bit of this, a little bit of this. And I think um, that's how high school English is taught a lot too. Also, yeah, also, absolutely. And I don't know why, they, that was what was on my mind as I was looking through these things. Once upon a time, um, I tried to like, I was marking off the authors in the book or in the, the anthology and was like, I'm going to try and read everything in here. Um, I sure. deeply did not finish, did not right, right. that. Um, I'm picturing like a 500-page Norton anthology. Oh, a huge one. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. It was a, a tall task to begin with, but I had a lot of time at the time. 
all of which is to say, um, I don't often pick up older stuff. Um, and, and the way that we framed this episode, uh, in our, in our notes, the initial pitch was really just old poems. Yeah. Um, really old poems. <laughs> and, and I did not define how old that was. You picked a real old one. And I was like, well, I'm going to pick a real old one. Um, and now we're, we're deep in the canon. I know I read mine for the first time when I was in high school. Um, okay. I read, I actually read yours like within the context of the collection when I was in grad school and that was like a choice to pick that up and do an assignment on it. Sure. And um, I haven't read that full collection, but it is one of the few pre 20th century collections I can name. Mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of like, you're, you're talking about context of collections. I can think of like, so I'm reading Samuel Taylor Coleridge and I can think of lyrical ballads. I can think of um, uh, William Blake's uh, what's it called? Heaven and hell or whatever. He, Something uh, like that. Yeah. yeah, something like that. And then the um, Leaves of Grass mm-hmm. and then the epics. And right. Like, I can't think no, of, like, poetry collections that existed before, like, the 20th century. That's well, just so not... Part of it was, like, just, like, I don't think it was distributed that way until right, right. mid-1800s. I have no idea. Yeah, no I mean, idea what I'm talking about here. Um, yeah. But, yeah, definitely, yeah, both that it didn't exist in that context once upon a time and then also just the way that it is received by us in 2020 um, is so often in this like really scattershot way that I have mixed feelings about. Yeah. That's pretty usual. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, you understand why the Norton anthologies exist. They exist to preserve history, preserve mm-hmm. literature, but then it, it does end up being like, you know, I can't tell you off the top of my head how much older your poet is than my poet. <laughs> have a rough guess but i, I can't I tell you off the top of my it. head i absolutely cannot um, um which is insane when you think about like if you were to equate someone from 1920 with someone from 2020 mm-hmm. that would be you know for the most part an extremely I'm trying to think of a non-cliche way to say it but like extremely apples to oranges comparison you're, yeah you're so far off base yeah um, um i'm gonna use this as an opportunity to get on my uh, teaching soapbox a little bit because what you Go just said it. reminded me how, cause you mentioned this idea of like, and this is true for both of us, these blind spots. And even that I shouldn't be saying it that way. These um, spots that we miss that we don't see, I guess. Yeah. When I was reading that big anthology, and I think it was just like Norton anthology of poetry or whatever. That was one of the big things that came to my mind is just like, what a fool's a fool's errand. What a silly, ridiculous idea to try and come up with a anthology that just has all of poetry. Yeah. You know, like what an yeah. absurd idea. You're not going to get it. Um, right. Yeah. It is like so tilted towards Western literature, literature in English, men, white men, po- right. not poetry that's translated. Like it's, it's obviously such a like bad, <laughs> ultimately it's a bad representation. Right. Um, I imagine most of the reason why it's done at least in my experience with classes is because it's like okay we can get a representative sample size the kids only have to pick up one book right that's but fair. at the same time i've since after college like talked to other friends who are professors and teaching like these intro lit classes and it's just like yeah i teach like composition 101 or whatever but my focus is on you know this one specific area of study so like censor you know if if someone's focus is specifically on like if their academic focus is specifically on 
the romantics. It's like, okay, we're teaching composition, but we're going to center it around the Shelleys and Byron or whatever. Or like, you know, someone has an interest in um, what's more like culturally up to date one. Let's say someone has an interest in a uh, like good luck like, with that class. <laughs> like 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 I've I've heard people teach like crime fiction or like sure. uh, like uh, horror fiction through the lens of you know the genre started for crime like in the early 20th century and moving towards contemporary writers or things like that. Right. And you're teaching a composition class. You're hitting whatever benchmarks the university sets for you, but you're doing it within your own your own field that you specialize in. I think that's way better. Well, I don't want to put value judgment on it. I think it's that's that's way more. Maybe does students a little bit more of a service, especially non English major students who are just taking it for right. a lit credit. Does them more of a service than being like, here's all the important poets you have to read from 500 years ago. Uh, you, you get that you get at this like, that I'm like I absolutely want to tackle of just of one like you said like high schoolers reading this old stuff which I think there just should be like way less of that yeah um, like shout out to you know there's the online uh, on Twitter is the I forget the the name of the woman who kind of started it but the hashtag Teach Living Poets like so much of what done is done in high school comes out of like this like literary tradition stuff that like there's a group of students who are gonna love that. Right, but also, they don't all need to be reading. Like, you, they don't actually need some of the really old stuff. Right, there's a group right. of students who's going to love it, but in my experience, there's a larger group of students who's going to be alienated by it. Right, but bouncing up back up to that college class idea of you're right, like it's a neat way to organize things. To I mean, neat as in clean, not as in like oh that's neat. Right, um, right. <laughs> uh, to organize things by like a time period and getting this like sampling of writers from that time period, but with the internet. Do we need a Norton anthology anymore? Because most right. of those poems are out there, you know. Right, and there there are things like um, I I still watch occasionally um, John Green led YouTube Crash right. Course Literature series because it's just like, oh, I need to brush up on this book, but I don't have the time to like pull it out and read the whole thing. <laughs> right. He can give me a a very well thought out high school level synopsis of sure. like a book in. 10 to 20 minutes. And it's like, right. yeah, okay, we've got YouTube for that. Or um, right. you know, we've got the Poetry Foundation archives. We've got tons of stuff on the so internet. That stuff is already out there. And like right. within the context of a course, um, even if we're studying like a time period, I do, I just think it would be way more valuable to me as a student to like go on a couple deep dives yeah. of people representative of that period or people even that stand out in that period than a little bit of Marlowe, a little bit of... I, as we talk about this, I'm thinking of, I took... During undergrad, I'm still mad about this. And it's just like classic 20-year-old not thinking. I took it was like British Renaissance lit. Oh no. Which like I definitely just like needed a Brit list, a Brit lit class and a pre-whatever year class. Yeah. And nothing yeah, yeah. in my head about the fact that like the actual Renaissance had nothing to do with England. Right. <laughs> it was a different time period. Right. And the quote unquote British Renaissance was not nearly as good or interesting as the real Renaissance. Right. Um, right. And, and, and we read, I found one of these poems when I was looking through the anthology um, that were, it was like interesting in terms of a conversation about intertextuality, mm-hmm. but it's like these three shepherd love poems Written right. over like an period, you know, yeah. It's the, the same pastoral thing, yeah, being written right. over and over, yeah. And there's, it's just like, there is absolutely nothing I want to say about this. Right. Ever again, you know? The two courses I use to knock that out are, there's one that is a really good example of what we're talking about, 
a, a really good example of the, the kind of narrow focus that we're talking about that I ended up not liking. <laughs> and one that is um, another good example that I did end up liking. The first one, through no fault of the, uh, of the instructor, um, uh, Dr. Jones at Loyola University, Chicago, um, it was a Shelley's in Italy class. And we learned a lot of interesting things about the Shelleys, about um, Mary Shelley's uh, widowhood, where she, um, you know, had to publish a bunch of like genre kind of pot boilers to make money and care for her kids and stuff like that. A um, couple Percy Shelley poems that you know I mostly don't like Percy Shelley, but a couple of them stuck out um, that I that I did dig. I just ultimately decided the Shelleys weren't for me, but. <laughs> I liked the focus of the class. The other one was another side of Romanticism, which was a uh, literary Satanism class, which was uh, Dr. Jack Cragwall at Loyola, which started with Paradise Lost and went up through, uh, I think, Frankenstein. It was just like the legacy of Satan in literature. And that Damn, was really yeah, cool. That's really cool. Um, that was a really good way for me to get my romantics in. Still don't care for the romantics very much. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was a really uh, a really cool one. And that's just... Those are two examples that stick out to me of like, this is how you make a course like this a focus rather than just like a, a sort of a half-hearted gesturing at (laughs) the canon. (laughs) I fully will take ownership of this. I took us deep down uh, into um, pedagogical concerns. No, no, that's Um, good. Agreed. I I enjoyed it. I had things that I wanted to say apparently. Um, But I think uh, before we, segue in any poems uh the question that like has to precede this uh, as as we've done a fair amount of bashing on old poetry why why should we read the canon or why should we read any of this you know what 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 do we get out of this um i guess there is a a a certain respect for tradition aspect that that jumps out at me there's a uh i think there's stuff you can pull from the canon like i'm thinking just purely from like a writer's toolbox Mm. Of just like I've talked before about enjoying writing in form, and that is something that uh, happens more in the canon, I'd say, than in in contemporary poetry. And I guess the the, the third thing I'd say is a lot of the canon stuff for me, I enjoy because of how ambitious it is. Mm. Um, I guess I'm thinking of like the epics, you know, like John Milton set out to write Paradise Lost to like create a poem for England, um, which is just like a notion that I kind of find silly and, and, and ridiculous, but also like there is something about it that attracts me to being like, mm. I'm going to get out here and write the story of God and Satan after aiding in a regicide and give England their own Odysseus or uh, Achilles or something like that, which is, you know, like, if anyone sat down to do that today, it would probably be like Jonathan Franzen or something, and it would be really uninteresting and terrible. Um, <laughs> but I think there's something interesting in uh, considering that scale of ambition. And even if, if you want to not do an epic, uh, look at William Blake with um, the woodcuts and the uh, you know the interconnected lyrics to create these collections of like again, all this God and Satan stuff, but like that was a really ambitious project that William Blake set out on. And, uh, I think there's something to, something to pull from that there. Hmm. Uh, so if that isn't too scattershot, that's, those are my three <laughs> takeaways. 
that's a different direction than I would than I would have thought. I, I like that. Um, I think that does bring something to the table. And I, I guess I wanted to like walk back my question in the sense of that, like I am very much about reading old stuff. I do. Yeah, think you're a big really Whitman important. guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think it's an important part of developing um, as a writer to really like literally just like to take in as much of anything as you can. Oh, 100%. And definitely, like, um, I have heard plenty, not plenty, I've heard enough folks um, who are, you know, a little bit more well into their career who kind of dismiss reading contemporary stuff to be like, that's obviously a terrible idea. Yeah. Uh, You can just tell when you're talking to them and you're like, oh, you don't actually read anything that's contemporary. Um, And I think the flip side of the coin, though, is also true of there's, as as I said, like the idea of a, Norton Anthology of Poetry is ridiculous because there's so freaking much to this right. history legacy. And I, I like, kind of like you said, just I think there's a lot that can be learned from this older stuff. One of the problems, um, and part of it again does go back to teaching, um, is that outside of the context they were written in, a lot of this stuff becomes more about deciphering than I think reading the poem. Yes. You know, the, that the Norton Anthology has like little footnotes and stuff. Right, one hundred percent. Literally, just because it's not written in the same like language that we're using, um, or at least like in contemporary language, like it's kind of just difficult to read. And I think too often we get caught up in like that me- meaning making issues that we said yeah. like what we like about poetry is that resisting aboutness, resisting meaning, um, or like one specific meaning, um, and that if we can slow ourselves down a little bit and try and look at some of these things like for the language. Um, I think it's you. There's so many just like ways of approaching things that um, either are out of fashion or have been done really freaking well, um, right. or just interesting. You know? Yeah, yeah I would. I would say fun to read all the time, but there's a lot to get. Right, and I would say um, for both the poems that we are reading today, that I, I definitely tried to do that and definitely felt a feeling like I was culturally missing out on something like mm, um, okay. there was just, and I, you know, I'm reading uh, both of these on the poetry foundation website. So stripped of the Norton anthology footnotes and things like that. Right. But um, yeah, definitely feeling like, okay, I'm missing, I'm probably missing some reference here. I'm probably yep. missing some turn of phrase, some sense of tone, something like that. That is just the product of being three to 500 years removed from it. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're right onto something. Um, but it does take, it does take a slowing down. It does take a removal of sometimes those irritating intro classes that you maybe were, was the last time you read one of these poems. Right. And that's hard to do sometimes, you know, and then what's less cool than hanging out with, with an English professor that doesn't read contemporary poetry. Those people are dorks. <laughs> um, all right. So speaking of the poems no. we're going to read today. Uh, Bob, uh, did you uh, pick a poem? <laughs> it turns out I did uh, pick a poem, and it opens uh, thinking about uh, whether we have enough time or not. Um, so I think rushing to the poems and getting out of our, <laughs> our endless diatribe there uh, was probably a good call. Um, I believe I did first encounter this poem in high school. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, I think, afterwards, but let me just read it first. Um, I have a lot of different ways that I might want to think about this, and we'll see how it goes. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> this is Andrew Marvell's uh, To His Coy Mistress. 
Had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldst rubies find. I by the tide of Humber would complain. I would love you ten years before the flood, and you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow, and a hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred years to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest, an age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. For lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at a lower rate. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor turns to dust and into ashes all my lust. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, and now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in this slow-chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sun stand still, yet we will make him run. All right, so we've been waiting for the uh, first time when you would read a poem and I'd be like, I don't really care for this, and here it is. Um, but uh, I uh, I do like the uh, language more than I like the language in my poem. So um, do you want to go okay. first and uh, talk a little bit why you picked it? Um, sure. So as I said, I think I first encountered this poem in high school, either sophomore year or senior year. I had the same teacher both those years, so they kind of run together. Um, older guy, he was like an institution at the high school. Like he had taught my best friend growing up. Still my best friend. Hi, Tom. Um, he had taught my friend Tom's dad, you know, like he'd been at the school for so long. And he framed this poem, and I think in a way that makes sense when you're like trying to get, it's, this is all boys Catholic school, you're trying to get these kids' attention and their interest um, as like, this is a poem about a dude who wants to get laid and what he's saying to this right. woman. That's kind of how it was presented to me freshman year of college too, yeah. right. Um, and I think at the time, like I was definitely into any dirty interpretation of anything you could give me. Um, right. If so you, if you got to be a little dirty at school. Yeah. That's I right. was like, yeah. Right. So my ears kind of perked up to that. Um, I think years later, like that feels really icky. Um, yeah, 100%. Like, like why, why, if, if that is what this poem is, why the hell is it in the canon? Like I get that yeah. things have changed. Da, da, da. Um, and then so years later, um, in my MFA, um, I'm taking a, it was kind of just called like 
general poetics um, with the great Lord Schwartz. Um, and it was the last time he was going to be teaching this class. And I'd had him for workshop. Um, I love Lloyd to death. And it was towards the end of my MFA. And I was like, I don't want to miss this class because I haven't had Lloyd in this kind of context. And it's obviously going to be great. And just as a side note, I like really, really wish I'd had that class at the beginning of my MFA because it was reading older stuff and it was really thinking about language and rhythm um, and like really zeroing in um, in a way that I think was like ultimately really helpful. I just wish I'd had that going into my workshops. But sure, besides the point, Lloyd gives in every one of these classes, um, he, you know, he always wanted it to be a discussion, but it's absolutely one of those things where you, you're in a room with someone who knows and loves this stuff so much that it's just like, no, keep talking. Please. Sure, sure. And he gave this incredible lecture on this poem, um, most of which I've forgotten. And I looked up and found the notes. My notes make zero sense. Oh, no. (laughs) I just remember the feeling of the lecture. Right, right, Uh, right. I I can relate to that with canon stuff, where sometimes if someone just really sits down and explains it to you in a way that's really interesting, you get attached to it. There. But kind of thinking about this and reading up about the poem a little bit, um, it's at least there's some tradition of uh, carpe diem love poems. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, yeah, and like puritanical that is, societies breed that, I think. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and like, yeah. And that, again, goes back to kind of that first thing I was saying is like one way to read this poem is I want to have I want to go to bed with you um, and clock's ticking carpe diem. Right. Um, I think Lloyd gave it this much more charitable kind of slowed down read and, and taking that carpe diem a little bit more to heart and thinking about it. But that even still reading it today, you know, am I satisfied with a poem that's just that essentially is just like YOLO and like, that's it like that. Right. I was, I was thinking about that too. And what kind of made me a little uncomfortable was like, we know nothing about the um, person to whom this poem is addressed. Sure. Yeah. Um, there's, we know that they are virginal and the speaker wants to change that. Right. <laughs> and this could be a beach boys. Wouldn't it be nice situation or a Jeffrey Epstein situation? I don't know. And, you know, I'm certainly, you know, no prude. I'm all for people exploring their sexuality, living life to the fullest and that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, is this poem much more than a horny poem that has been passed <laughs> down for 500 years? <laughs> I don't have a satisfactory answer, um, both on like what I think about the poem or I, I guess that is, I don't have a satisfactory answer on like what I think in terms of the poem is doing that meaning. Um, like you said, this was written so long ago. Why isn't there a year on the page? It was 15 or 1600s. 1621 to 1678. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, so yeah, some of that uh, cultural understanding of the time we don't have i mean like i can assume like the patriarchy was just as strong if not in many ways worse back then like right. there's absolutely right. a layer of grossness that like has to be here yeah. um with that said if i slow down and look at the language there's so much here that is interesting to me there there is there's there's some stuff to explore for sure um it starts yeah that opening had we but world enough and time be, it would not be a problem if we were taking our time with this, right? Uh, and this exploring, we would sit down, think. You would rock. You would walk by the uh, Ganges in India. I would be by the Humber. I think in England, I would love you ten years before the flood. 
you could refuse until the conversions of the Jews. There's this just like blowing up of time that's happening right. right there of saying like, there's this other universe where we live forever and we could take our freaking sweet time. And then he goes to a line that stood out to me when I was in high school, a line that we talked a lot about in my grad school class. My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. And vegetable, vegetable love. It's it's a weird turn of phrase. It's, it's so weird. And every time I want to say a word like weird, it somehow like diminishes it. I go like, but I love it. <laughs> I want vegetable love. <laughs> um, I suppose if you're thinking of an agrarian society, then uh, uh, vegetables do get replenished year after year after year. <laughs> Um, vegetables also, um, you know, frequently phallic in nature. (laughs) (laughs) It could be that there. (laughs) Um, it goes on to this part of like, I would take a hundred years, uh, to praise your eyes, 200 years to adore each breast, 30,000 for the rest of you, which is, you know, over the top, it feels very, that feels like a trope of the time. Um, right, like a deliberate over-exaggeration. Right, and, and yeah. breaking down a woman's body. Right. Yuck. Um, and that was one of the things that stood out to me looking through this anthology. I definitely found another poem. I don't remember who it's by, but like essentially the same move. It was so gross. It's like five lines, and it was like, essentially it was like, your breasts are like the Milky Way. I could spend forever looking at them. I'm like, Is that Shakespeare? No. <laughs> It was not Shakespeare. It wasn't. Oh, not. <laughs> okay. Maybe it's John Donne. I don't know. It's. It's. Yeah. I, I know what you're talking about, though. It's, it's somebody. So bad. It's. Yeah. There's. There's so much grossness back then. <laughs> <laughs> but at my back, I always hear time's wing chariot hurrying near. I like that turn. Yeah. And especially when you consider that back then people didn't live to be eighty or whatever. You okay. Know? Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, Time's Winged Chariot, I mean, they were, you know, I don't want to do, get too much into meaning making, but like, I mean, they weren't that far removed from the plague, right? And right. Like, I, um, <laughs> and then there is just like, yeah, that um, oppressive patriarchy. You can understand the desperation of this poem. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he, you know, yeah, he's saying like, we don't have much time, and he does go there with the metaphor in this he really does absurd section um in my marble vault so uh he's thinking of like a mausoleum you know in your grave uh shall sound my echoing song you're gonna hear <laughs> you're gonna be dead and you're gonna hear me singing this to you <laughs> then worm shall try that long preserved virginity um, right. let me get at it before the worms do Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What? Um, the grave is a fine and private place, but none, I think, do their embrace. <laughs> Unbelievable stuff. Like, have sex with me now, or you're going to die without this incredible experience. Oh what confidence that the speaker has. Um. <sighs> I I went into the podcast and choosing this poem, thinking I might feel better about this poem as we talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
not I'm not here to do that for you, but I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> I just I need to I need to call up again Lloyd Schwartz and say, Lloyd, can you tell me about this poem again? Because when you speak about it, I'm buying it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I will say that um especially when you're reading it so uh when we get to my poem i'm gonna have a lot of complaints about meter and rhyme Uh um when you're reading this one this this does read a little better out loud than most Uh what i think of as a canonical poem there is a lot of metaphor to unpack there's a lot of interesting language here there there's the the blowing up of time at the beginning like you like you said and then the zeroing into that's not the world we live in we're gonna die soon right kind of thing it's it's doing interesting things i just don't think it all adds up to much more than (laughs) let's get it on (laughs) which you know is fine sometimes poems don't add up to much that's okay but yeah. That's fair, but like exactly, I guess, like getting to the point is, I think that is fine. I think that's okay for a poem to not add up to much. Um, it's a million percent worth questioning why is this 400 year old poem something that we look up to? Right. You know, um, something that we keep reading, that we have high schoolers read. Right. Um, what you were saying there, though, is yeah, among what I would want to praise with this poem is that even within the rigidness of, I have not been counting the beats here, but there's obviously there's a rhythm here and there's a rhyme scheme. Um, or, yeah, there's a, a set rhythm here. Um, even within the rigidness, this still feels like a poem where like every line is packed. Um, yeah. You know, that, you yeah. Have, that it's worth slowing down and thinking about what's going on in every line, that there's um, language that I want to appreciate um, in every line. And, you know, whether or not um, this poem is doing something that I appreciate on a content level. Um, that <laughs> right. is something to, to admire and something that I would hope to be able to do in my own work. 100%, yeah. I think he does come back a little bit at this very, very end um, to kind of take us out of this poem. Because uh, the, the first part of the last stanza is this very classic grossness, you know, grossness, um, while you're still young and beautiful, uh, you know. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But moves on to, uh, where is it? Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. But that ball and tearing our pleasures, to me, it it seems sexual. And it's like through the iron gates of life. I have no idea what he's getting at right there. Thus, though we cannot make our sunset still, yet we will make him run. Um, which weirdly empowering, I guess. Like, like, yeah, I guess so. Like, it's yeah, it's like a um, like you know, you're saying like a carpe diem, seize the carp, yolo right. kind of thing. <laughs> like, uh, if we do, yeah, this, if, if we can't, if we can't make the sun stand still, we're gonna make our days worth it, kind of thing. Yeah, that's it. I, I get that. Yeah. yeah, tearing through the iron gates of life seems like uh, breaking through like societal strictures. I guess. Ooh. I'm reverting okay. to like high school mode here, but yeah, um, there you go. Yeah, but yeah, you know. Andrew Marvell, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I'm looking at your picture right now. He definitely has a Bob from freshman year of college haircut. 
He uh, did something interesting in his life. I can't remember. He's not the one who got stabbed above the eye because he was a spy, but he did something interesting. But I, I just to take some language from the, the Poetry Foundation, in an era that makes a better claim than most upon the familiar term transitional, Marvell wrote a varied array of exquisite lyrics that blend cavalier grace with metaphysical wit and complexity. Well, and what more can you ask of a lyric poem? <laughs> that is pretty high praise. It is. Yeah, man, huge bio. We've spent enough time on Andrew Marvell. Let's get out of here. What's next? Right, let's get out of here. Let's, uh, let's go to the sea. All right. As you always do. <laughs> as I always, as I want to do. Uh, so this is an excerpt from um, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who I'm never confident I'm saying his name correctly. Uh, like with most of the poets I read on this podcast. Um, so this is from uh, part four, this little excerpt from part four, because I'm not reading this whole 2000 line poem or whatever it is. <laughs> Beyond the shadow of the ship, I watched the water snakes. They moved in tracks of shining white. And when they reared, the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. Within the shadow of the ship, I watched their rich attire. Blue, glossy green, velvet black. They coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire. Oh, happy living things, no tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them, unaware. Sure, my kind saint took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. The selfsame moment I could pray, and from my neck so free, the albatross fell off, and sank like lead into the sea. Are you hearing xylophone? Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> One second. Okay. So the first thing I want to point out about Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is it starts out exactly like Panic at the Disco's I Write Sins, Not Tragedies, <laughs> in that it begins with an annoying lunatic bothering people at a wedding. <laughs> So I just want to get that out there before we're past it. <laughs> before we get in there, okay. Um, so yeah, as we look to, it's it's no secret. Um, I love the sea. Um, I, I I'm not sure exactly what draws me to it, but I love the sea. Um, and part of why this section particularly stuck out to me is uh, the crew has just been claimed by death. Um, there's a lot of myth making in this poem, which I think is is very cool. Um, there's death. And then there's his companion, um, a woman who is a uh, uh, life in death, and they cast dice for uh, for the sailors' lives. Um, all the mariners' crew goes to death. The mariner is cursed to live life in death. Um, and these sea creatures that he sees earlier, uh, he calls them slimy things earlier in the poem. But now, with all his crew dead, scattered around him, he appreciates their life. So anything celebrating sea creatures is good in my eyes. Um, and it's just, it is a terrifying section where, yeah, you have a literal encounter with death and then you, uh, you're, you're celebrating sea creatures, which as much as I love them are very gross and terrifying looking, but yeah, I don't, you know, I don't care very much for this poem. It's not a great reading experience to me. I read enough one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, and <laughs> Brown boy, brown boy, what can you be to have my other reading be in like childishly rhyming quatrains? 
Um, yeah, I just can't get around metered rhyming. I don't always mind rhyming. Like, I like hip-hop. I like a lot of slam. Uh, Lisa Jarno's book Night Scenes makes really good use of metered rhyming. But it is just damn near impossible for me to get into this stuff. Um, <laughs> Your reading of it was, was, really, was really lovely. It didn't... I didn't feel tripped up on the rhyme. The only part... Um, I picked the section I hate at least. That might be it. The only part for me was the, the double repetition of unaware. Um, mm-hmm. That like glaringly stood out. Of, like, yeah, which he does throughout the poem, that repetition. It's, it's part of the form, yeah. Yeah, there's that famous uh, water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink stanza that he has in there. I would agree with you that this is a poem I remember, like, I think it's really impressive. Um, yeah, it's very long and ambitious. Yeah, um, but just like you said, it's hard to read on the page, um, yeah. and because it's so plot driven, um, I found it took a lot of work, to, you know, to get through. Um, yeah, especially the first time I was reading this. It does to me though bring back kind of just just the thought of of how important like the out loud part is to a poem. Um, yes, one hundred percent. Thinking of that experience of reading poems to people um, right. as a form of entertainment that maybe we don't think about enough. Yeah, <laughs> that that is definitely huge to this poem because I think if you were to get up and read the rhyme of Ancient Mariner to a, a crowd of people, everyone would be like, "Okay, dead poet society, like sit down, <laughs> like this is this is really this is irritating." Yeah, that's not to say, like, rhyme in and of itself is bad. That's not to say meter in and of itself is bad. And, of course, this poem was written, you know, what, in 17-whatever, 18-what, 17th century? Wait, 1700s? Yeah, 1798 was the first year it was published. Um, So, yeah, we're a long time removed from that. And, you know, Coleridge never read Dr. Seuss. So there's, you know, there, there is a... Um, there's some distance we have to have with this, but yeah, it, it, to me reading it in 2020, it highlights, yeah, the importance of reading your poem out loud and like, and I do it in my own writing too, like not even with like rhyming or meter, but just like, oh, did I repeat two similar syllables, like Mm -hmm. too close together? Mm -hmm. Um, and it's kind of a knowing when you hear it thing. Um, it's this like, oh, like you, you don't know until you read it out loud sometimes like, oh, I should edit this line or twist this around a little bit. Right. Um, because the reading out loud is important. I think like you're saying too, because it has that almost nursery rhyme feel, that sound, for whatever reason, um, I don't know, it makes us feel a certain way. It, um, it brings up like a certain set of expectations, I guess. And mm-hmm. this poem does subvert that. Like it's so weird as hell. Narrative. It's real. It's a really bizarre poem. Yeah, right. for sure. Um, like it's said, full of stuff I should like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember what the albatross does throughout. Uh, we got the last mention of him at the end of that section that you read, and I just remember reading this, and the albatross just kept coming back up and up. <laughs> yeah, I think it's supposed to be like an apparition. I don't know. Maybe some mm. romantic scholars are like. Will be screaming at their uh, at oh, their phones or whatever. We'll say, yeah, yeah, but um, but I didn't remember that the albatross was shot was shot like so early. Uh-huh. Um, it happens like almost right away, and okay. then 
um, before this section I just read, they made him wear it across his neck, right? Um, which is the famous image. And then they took it off, and then they met up with death, and then, like, yeah, it keeps coming back and keeps coming back. Yeah, and I think it's a metaphor for, like, the sanctity of, like, of, like, animal life, um, which is, you know, good, (laughs) (laughs) you know, positive. Yeah, it keeps reappearing and reappearing, and then the poem's so long, and the albatross is so wrapped up in our cultural minds that it was hard for me to really, like, nail down exactly what, uh, what I think of the albatross. I realized reading this poem, I don't know what an albatross looks like. I, I Googled it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just, in my head, I was just like, wait, what is the ending of this poem? And I was like, oh, yeah. The very yeah. last stanza? Oh, man. He went like one that hath been stunned, and is of sense forlorn, a sadder and a wiser man. He rose the moral morn. And that's the wedding guest. That's not the mariner. That's the wedding right. guest who's just like, was trying to go to a wedding, have some fun, you know, do the cha-cha slide. And then he has to like sit through this depressing poem. And he's like, haven't you people ever heard of closing the goddamn door? <laughs> we shouldn't just let sailors into our wedding. We shouldn't just let sailors into our wedding. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a killer ending. Um, you know, someone walks out of a door sad is always a great ending to go for. <laughs> um, I, I think this is, you know, only tangential, tangentially uh, related, um, but underrated, again, thinking about like publication and books as collections, um, is that lyrical ballads, Coleridge and Wordsworth, one of like, I don't know. Yeah, one of the, I don't know, premier collections that you can think of when you're right. thinking of canon poetry, not just the poems but the collections, um, is a essentially a split book. You know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's half poems, words, half poems, Wordsworth, um, and that doesn't happen enough. Yeah, yeah. Small presses. I'm looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know if that actually would be. Uh, helpful in terms of the the monetary stuff, but I can only think of a few like split chapbook situations. Um, and I think, yeah, and like I a think... full split, not like a collab thing. Like just right. like right, yeah, like a almost like a punk labels used to do like split EPs between mm-hmm. the two bands. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, right. Uh, I I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Do I what other Coleridge poems do I even know? I know a few, but none are coming to mind. I'm trying to pull these up. Do I have any of these? Oh, Kubla Khan. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the only other one with the name. Got a bunch of fragments. Oh, they all did yeah, this thing. he had thing. some trouble finishing stuff. And this one, the one he's most known for, wasn't well-received. Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. Even Wordsworth bashed it a little bit um, <laughs> and said that it, like contributed to the book not selling well (laughs) (laughs) see that's just when you're you're mad at your collaborator like nothing was gonna happen there right i'm just i'm just clicking on the poetry foundation website they also have a on dunn's poetry and that was a thing a bunch of there's a bunch of that in the norton anthologies too of like on this guy's death on this guy's poetry oh Um, yeah yeah like done as much anymore maybe i don't know um this is a tiny poem i don't I don't want to give it any attention. 
I don't know, man. That might be Coleridge. <laughs> <laughs> might be all we have to say. Um, I, 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 yeah, I don't want to... I don't want to shit on it too much. Um, but I, saying, I don't want to walk away from this with this, like, negative energy. I think it's it's fun to make fun of this a little bit. Um, but I, I mean, like, we both led with, like, this poem is impressive as hell. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and, like, worth taking the time with. And um, and to uh, to weave a story like that in a poem is no small feat. Absolutely, um, absolutely. To weave the poem, to stick to the form the whole way through, to have the language actually be interesting or good, right? Um, you know, like, to do like some myth making along the way, to converting some of the conventions of the time, like hell yeah, yeah. yeah. There's there's all stuff that I like in there. There's a reason I picked this one. There's a reason it jumped out to me when, right. um, when uh, when we brought up this topic. It's just. You know, I started going through it, and I was like, "Wait a second, how long is this poem?" <laughs> That's a, I, I knew when you, when you picked it, it wasn't surprising, but I was like, "Man, I don't know, where you an excerpt from this because it is it's a beast." Yeah. <sighs> so yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, not not all negative energy. I really, I really don't want to come across as too negative on this podcast. Uh, there is something fun about making fun of the canon. <laughs> um, I mean, and uh, and also like. I think we appreciate this stuff. I think we both also think it's like really important to make fun of the canon. And I recognize that like there's a lot of the canon itself is this flawed concept. And right. uh, And like you were saying up top, it's a lot of many people. Yeah. Yeah. It's Um, a lot of white men. It's a lot of, a lot of heavily Christian stuff like the Marvel thing. It's a lot of heavily, um, like heavily problematic Christian stuff. It's a lot of heavily, um, uh, glorifying war stuff. There's, right. you know, there's, there's a lot to problematize and complicate with the canon. And, you know, until we're not all forced to read it all the time and we can discover things on our own, like, yeah, I think it's important to, uh, to, yeah, respect your ancestors, but then make fun of them a little bit. <laughs> and, to, and to open up, like open up the canon to all the other great stuff, you know, just, yeah, right. it's so limiting to say that like, these are the things that you all need to read. Um, because none of us need to read any of this stuff. Right. Um, Nobody needs this, this, to read anything. Both of these poems, you know, yeah, have been read long enough and respected enough that they should be held up along with all of the other great stuff. Um, that's yes. Often left out of the canon, often not taught in classes. Right. Um, I think that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, um, speaking of people that get, uh, overdue celebration because of the volume that has been written about them and discussed about them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's a terrible segue. So this week's question, NBA question is a little tricky because it involves talking about players that you and I probably haven't seen play very much in his 2010 book of basketball. Bill Simmons makes a line of demarcation in the NBA from pre 1977 and 1977 to the present. 1977 was the year the ABA and the NBA merged and just two seasons before the three point line was introduced and uh, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird came into the league and the NBA became more or less what we know of it as now. So who is your favorite pre 1977 basketball player? That's a great question. That's a good canon question. It's a canon question. Connections there. Yeah. Mine is uh, Earl the Pearl, black Jesus Monroe. 
Um, again, I don't know much beyond a few grainy YouTube highlight videos and uh, what I've read about his playing style. Apparently he had really good handles. Um, he was something of a playground legend. Uh, there's that scene in He Got Game where Denzel is breaking down um, uh, you know, his, his, his game and how he was a playground legend and averaged 41 points as a senior in college. Um, how he ended up naming his kid Jesus after Earl Monroe being black Jesus. Um, also, I'm always going to be sentimental about someone who played for the Baltimore Bullets. Um, I was born in Baltimore, and my wife's from there. It's my second favorite city in America. And if you ask me, the Wizards should move back. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going Earl to Pearl Monroe, a uh, flashy, showy point guard who um, uh, had a whole second act with the Knicks that we don't need to talk about because <laughs> it's the Knicks. All right, all right, I see it. Um, I mean, like you're saying, it's so frustrating to be just like, I really have no idea how he played. You know, yeah, a few highlights here or there. Right, some um, behind-the-back moves, some spin moves. Right. Don't know what else. Rainy. These are, I feel like, kind of boring answers. <laughs> the first thing, came, the first two things that came to mind is, is one, and speaking of grainy highlights, is uh, the way they talk about Wilt and his athleticism. I'm sure, just so fascinated yeah. in. Um, there's at least one highlight of him just jumping over a guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The most incredible thing is there's a fast break Will Chamberlain, and it's just like, what was happening? As a seven-foot-one guy, like seven-foot-one dudes don't jump over people. Right. So so that was a little bit, I guess, in terms of like who I want to see. I want I want to have seen Will Chamberlain play. That's how, you know, that. Yeah. Larger than life, in theory. But uh, Oscar Robertson seemed incredible. I, I'm very... Interested um, both in his game and like him as a human being, because he talks a lot about um, all the trash he had to go through. Yeah, Um, lots of uh, lots of racism in that dude's history. Right. Um, Suffered, not perpetuated. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, You know, and and I know with the league's um, pace being so crazy right now that uh, the triple double is kind of watered down because Russell Westbrook does it every year. Right. Um, not do this guy, I don't think. Um, but you know, once upon a time the idea of uh Oscar Robertson and his it's something I guess he only averaged it one season, but it's like a, the first like six years of his career or something, it averages out to be a triple double. That's yeah. insane. You know That's insane. Like, yeah, I think it yeah. was like um I think it was the he did it once his rookie year and then it averaged out for the first five years of his career. His second year is the year he did it. Even still, like his so his rookie year, it's ten point one rebounds game, nine point seven assists per game, thirty. Oh, okay. Like so, it was the second year they did it. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. So if you take like one, two, three, four, five, yeah, his first five years, it's got to average out to thirty points a game, ten assists a game, ten rebounds a game. Like what? That's, that's, what? That's nuts. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, long been kind of interested. And Oscar Robertson, and, and, and again, just like, would be so curious to see more uh, of what his game was like. Give me those. Yeah, and to those old videos, a, NBA. I know you've got them. Right. Well, and there's also such a uh, like we were talking about with the poems, a cultural remove. Where like, what were defenses like? What was health, yep. nutrition, conditioning like? Right. All that stuff. It's it's really hard, even when you're watching like five minute clips on YouTube, like to put yourself in that situation. Absolutely. I think that is a good metaphor. I think I think I want to ruminate on that a little bit more of, of exactly because there are times even not even that old games. I I think like 
uh, I've tried to watch, you know, 80s games and even the Lakers, as good as they were, I just watch his games and I'm like, stop dribbling for five seconds and taking a, a random pull-up long two-point jumper. Like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> you know? Or I'll this... watch 80s games and be like, you blew that help rotation on defense. <laughs> right. Like, did you have too many um, cigarettes at halftime? Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 yeah, in that same way that going into an old canonical poem, I, I have to prep myself and think about it, maybe give myself some of the context. Um, yeah, thinking about these players from different areas, it's like, what, what are we? <laughs> right. What, what exactly on? are we looking at? What's the full right. picture of what we're looking at? Yeah, yeah. We did it. We connected poetry and basketball again. <laughs> we did it. Oh. All right, that's been an episode. Our music is produced by Brendan Johnson. Our art is designed by A.M. Strickland. We'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>